Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're going to have one last go at making sense of British politics and trying to understand the meaning of Boris Johnson. Talking Politics has been brought to you for the last five years in partnership with the London Review of Books, who are mourning the end of the podcast the only way they know how, with one last unbeatable subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. Get six issues, that's three months of the LRB, where I'll be continuing to write about politics and more, for just £6 by using the URL lrb.me slash talk6. That's lrb.me slash talk6. I take it we're happy just to chat about anything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It is a great pleasure that Helen and I are joined today by Chris Brook. I had the traditional daily bowl of Alpen with a banana chopped up on it, uh, but it was my last banana. Whom we haven't spoken to about British politics or anything else for quite a long time. Uh, That raises a question about what I will have for breakfast tomorrow. And we're also doing this in person, something else we haven't done for a long time. I actually went to Cafe Nero, so I had yoghurt, because it had no croissants whatsoever. I had breakfast in Cafe Nero. <laughs> you had the last croissant. <laughs> and we're in the middle of the Boris Johnson story, and we don't know how it's going to end, and it will probably end after we've ended, so all speculations have to come with, we won't get the chance to correct ourselves. <laughs> Helen, if you were a Red Wall, Blue Wall MP in a marginal, a lot of them aren't, particularly marginal anymore, constituency, and you were looking at your decision tree, I don't know if that's the right image, or doing the, the calculus of risk, what would, how would you be thinking it through now, keep him or dump him? I think it's very difficult from the point of view of a marginal Conservative MP, whether that they are in you know, what's called the, you know, the red wall seats or in a seat in the, the south-east with one of the smaller um, majorities, because while it's very obvious why Boris Johnson has become a problem, uh, perhaps you might say particularly for the, the Red Wall um, seat Conservative MPs because he's clearly lost a lot of popularity with Leave voters, it's not so clear who can replace him. I mean, I think that the problem in terms of just going with, the, well, who's going to do any better for the Conservative Party thought is, is that there is now such chaos around... Boris Johnson, you might say, was always there, but the chaos is so visible that it's become, I think, quite difficult to see how he how he stabilises things. So, I think a leadership election is coming. Whether it would make sense, I think it probably would make sense to wait from the point of view of a marginal marginal seat Conservative MP till after the May local elections. I mean, I think that it is important for the end of Boris Johnson to be tied up with elections. And for that to be the case, without, and I think if it doesn't, it damages a Conservative Party, then they've got to wait until May. But as we know, there's a lot of contingencies in play at the moment and could bring this crisis to a head more quickly than that. I agree with, with that pretty much. I don't think anything can save the more marginal red wall seats at the moment. The majorities are too slim. Labour only needs to switch low thousands, numbers of votes. There's every reason to think they can do that. So the strategic question for the Conservative Party is, I mean, I don't think they can win 
the kind of majority that Boris Johnson won in 2019. But the question is, can they win with a majority of 20 or 30 enough to form a stable one-party government? Indeed, even a very slim majority would allow them to continue because um, the divided opposition in particular, the continuing strength of the SNP, means that uh, with only a slim majority uh, in the absence of issues as divisive as Brexit within the Conservative Party, as has been the case in the past, they ought to be able to govern. So I think if you're an MP in a, in a marginal red wall seat, there's probably nothing you can do. I, I sometimes wonder whether the big, uh, the big unknown, as we look at Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, who are usually uh, flagged as the top two contenders for the leadership, is a sort of question about when push comes to shove, is the British electorate more racist than it is sexist or vice versa? And that's, I think, something we, we, we don't know. But there is that strategic question, even if you're kind of willing to sacrifice a whole bunch of marginals in the um, North and the Midlands as unwinnable, what is the Conservative Party's best strategy for squeaking home or winning a smaller majority in an election? And I think it is unclear, and it's unclear for, for that reason, that although the bulk of the party, the bulk of the parliamentary party, does not seem to want to go into another election with Boris Johnson in charge. There's no agreement at all on who the likely successor is. Rishi Sunak polls much better than anyone else. Liz Truss polls extremely badly with the great British public, although there are reasons to be uh, sceptical that that kind of polling at this stage reveals that much. Um, But Sunak's reputation as uh, an austerity chancellor, as somebody who's keen on... um, clamping down on public spending, won't sit at all well in a Conservative Party that is used to the kind of pork barrel bordering on corruption that Boris Johnson has has popularised and personified. So I'm going to be the one who suggests that Johnson's position is not hopeless um, and that there are reasons to think he might survive. Who knows? And we, we won't be around. We won't so. be held accountable for anything. <laughs> we won't be accountable. I'm not accountable for anything I say here. Um, so one is that you know there is a focus on the possibility of there being enough letters written to Sir Graham Brady to trigger a no confidence vote, but it's it's incredibly hard to see him losing a no confidence vote. We discover that with Theresa May, not least because ministers are obliged to vote with him or they have to resign, and there are a heck of a lot of people on the government payroll, um, and he doesn't want to quit. There's no evidence that he he will have to be forced out. So that's pretty tough. And, and then people set these arbitrary thresholds, like if he, if more people vote against him than voted against Theresa May, then he's finished. But you know, he has to agree with that for him to be finished. It also feels to me like there is a generational divide within the party, not necessarily on age, but in terms of longevity of membership of the House of Commons, in that there's clearly a lot of agitation among the newer intake, the 2019 intake. And you know, some people express... Mild bafflement at this because don't they realise they owe their jobs to Boris Johnson? But I suspect actually they've drawn a different conclusion, which is they don't owe their jobs to Boris Johnson. They owe their jobs to the fact that the Conservative Party got rid of Theresa May. I mean, they associate dumping a leader who's failing with their arrival in politics. But older Conservative MPs, that is of longer standing, I suspect still associate defenestrating a leader with a big majority with years and years of chaos, and that there are dangerous precedents that might be sent here, particularly if driven out in the middle of the news cycle. I mean, I think that is one of the things that must give them pause, so I tend to agree with Helen, there needs to be a marker. And then the last thing, I don't I don't think this means he'll survive, but the last thing is the two possible markers are the May elections and the police 
investigation into uh, what was in Sue Gray's report. And we have to remember that's at the heart of this. Leave aside Jimmy Savile and everything else. Johnson's in this position because of those parties. And he's done a pretty successful job of kind of disaggregating these things so that they don't all come at once. So they might still come at once, but you know, one of those things is going to have to bring him down, I think, either the May elections or the police investigation. And it's not completely clear to me that either on their own will be sufficient. They might, but they might not. So for all those reasons, I suspect it's true that the majority of the Parliamentary Conservative Party would like him to be gone, but I'm not sure he will be. I think the other thing, though, that is part of it, I agree with what you said, a lot of what you said, though, is the fact that so many people have left number 10, senior people have left number 10 in one way um, or another, both at civil servant level and at special advisor um, level, including some people who have been until now loyal to Johnson for quite a long time and that seems to me to be a bit of a turning point because unless he can stabilise the number 10 operation then all the kind of pressures that the Parliamentary Conservative Party put on him including their frustration about many ways in which the office the number 10 has been run whether that was during the Cummings era which was one set of frustrations or what has happened not immediately after the Cummings era but certainly in the last maybe since last summer, certainly since last um, autumn. If he can't do that, it's just very difficult, I think, for a, for a prime minister to function. One of the things about Tory leadership ballots uh, among the MPs is we've got two precedents now of uh, prime ministers who've won them and then left office pretty shortly afterwards. And that's first Mrs Thatcher in 1990, uh, where uh, she was still in the... Conservative Party race after the first ballot, but she pulled out rather than face the second ballot. Um, and then, okay, the rules are different uh, in those days, but more recently, uh, when a no-confidence vote was held about Theresa May, she won it, and then it was pretty clear after that that the sands were running out on her time in office, and she left office uh, not too long after that. And I think you're right that if a vote were to be held sooner rather than later, Johnson would win it. He's got the payroll vote on his side, almost certainly. He's got the anxieties about who might succeed him going, sure, he'll probably win it. But unless he wins it with a thumping great majority, that doesn't kill the issue. And one sign that you know the party is wargaming this kind of stuff is you know there's been speculation around the press that the executive of the 1922 committee wants to change the rules to make it easier to um, hold a no-confidence vote motion in the leader even after they win it at the moment the rules say that if Johnson wins he's safe in office for a year well that didn't save uh, Theresa May uh, but if if, there, if there's conversation in the party about rewriting those rules you know that's a sign about the extent to which um, moves may be afoot to grease his departure from office even in the event of him winning a confidence vote. I agree that speculation about the particular threshold is, is, isn't especially illuminating, um, but I do think that anything short of an absolutely resounding victory in a confidence vote means these issues will not go away. And as we've seen, they, there is a tendency to snowball. There's a tendency for a cascade effect that 
once one person resigns, it's easier for the next person to resign. Once someone sends in their letter, it's easier for the next person to send in their letter, and so on and so on. And that, I think, ultimately is what's going to do for him. Exactly, with James Pennell and Gordon Brown, but that's a totally separate historical parallel. Just just a yeah. couple of things, and then, and then Helen. I mean, it is true with Theresa May that the thing that finally did for her were the European elections in which the Conservative Party got, was it 9%? 9%. Of the vote. Well, it's a bit less. I think it was 8.7. 8%. And in a way, those elections were well set up to deliver the coup de grace because in that kind of electoral system, party support can completely collapse. After all, that was the election that the Brexit Party won. And I, if I was a Tory, I'd be wanting to get rid of Johnson. I'd be a little nervous about local elections being my triggering device. I'm not sure we know enough. I suspect the Tory vote will be pretty poor. But there doesn't seem to be, there's certainly not that kind of fluctuation around local election results. And of course, people always say, well, it depends which one you're comparing it to. The European elections were good headline grabbing disaster elections. They have been repeatedly. So that's one source of awareness. And then the other question is, I just have no idea the answer to this. But as you said, we have these precedents one a long time ago, one recent, so here's the possibility of another, and then they want to change the rules so that there could be another within the year. And it feels like the possibility of a slippery slope to this being the new politics, that you know, Conservative Party leaders are subject to these kinds of pressures all the time, because whoever does win will not be leading a united party. There will be pressures around Brexit, around net zero, and so on. And if I was a Conservative politician, and we haven't discuss this, but maybe we won't, maybe we will, you know, this, this would also be Cummings having helped drive him out of office, I would just be worried about the precedents worried that this is a slippery slope to a more chaotic politics within the Conservative Party, and holding on to him for a bit longer, at least, until he's kind of unequivocally no longer able to govern, is less risky than succumbing now or in the next couple of months. I think that the Cummings thing we should come back to because I think that is a, a, a big issue about what's gone on. And just to say, I'm assuming in his one-to-ones, that's a big part of his pitch to them, which is you realise getting rid of me is a victory for that guy. I think they're the parallels. And we, we've missed one out, which is John Major, who obviously calls a, a leadership election himself to basically tell them to um, put up or shut up and mm. ends up winning but defeating it, John Redwood but it, his, is that right yeah. but you could say his premiership doesn't recover from that but I think his premiership was pretty much dead before that um, moment but I think there are two differences between the two cases we've been talking about and then a big difference between them both and now is the European Union question in one way or another is at the heart of the Thatcher one and it's at the heart of the Theresa May one in the end Theresa May failed because she was unable to take Britain out of the European Union and the Leave vote mobilised sufficiently in the European Parliament elections such that if there wasn't some way forward for the Conservative Party to take, or a Conservative government to take um, the United Kingdom out of the European Union, the Conservative Party was existentially finished. I mean, you know, it was on the precipice uh, in what happened in May um, 2019. I think the reason why the Thatcher one haunted the Conservative Party is because of all things that she could have been got rid of at that point. And obviously, from the voters' point of view, the really unpopular thing that she was embroiled in at the time was the poll tax. Um, But inside the Conservative Party, in terms of the policy question, if you like, at the heart of it, it was actually the question of whether Britain, what Britain was going to do about the single currency, um, as it was then um, called. And Thatcher had made clear that so long as she was in charge, there would be no possibility of a Conservative government taking Britain into monetary union or indeed agreeing to, under the Maastricht Treaty, to be 
part of the process of it building up to it in um, any way. And at that point, she was very much in a minority within the Conservative Party. I mean, even people who would later become pro-Brexit, um, someone like, say, like Nigel Lawson or like Michael Howard, were much more cautious. I mean, Lawson was always against monetary union, but he disagreed with her about the exchange rate um, mechanism. I think the reason why uh, Thatcher one haunted the Conservative Party for so long was because after, partly because of all well, good deal to do with Black Wednesday, most of the party actually ended up agreeing with her. So they they basically knifed her for something that in her last stand actually was something that was actually quite prophetic in certain ways about about where things were going. And I think that that is why it became so difficult to get past for the Conservative Party. I take the point about why Theresa May was finished off by poor Conservative performance in the European elections, and the European elections kind of spoke directly to the issue uh, that was so difficult for her premiership, uh, the question of Brexit. And this year's local elections don't have anything like that totemic significance. But I do think they're important for a particular reason, which is that if you look back over the not-so-distant past, Ed Miliband and the Labour Party had extensive poll leads in the period, the 18 months or so, before the 2015 election. Labour was polling, you know, similar to what it's doing now, the regularly healthy leads. And that's why when we started podcasting all those years ago, I was reasonably optimistic about, um, if not a Labour victory at the election, certainly uh, the Conservatives losing their overall majority. And that's something I was wrong about. Now, one of the things, if you look back to think about, well, why was Labour's position weaker then uh, than uh, it might have appeared to be at the time, although they had the headline poll lead, they never started piling up enormous victories in council elections, having regularly May elections where the Conservatives were losing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of councillors, which was an important part of the demoralisation of the Conservative Party in the 1990s, in that run of elections leading up to the catastrophic defeat in 1997. And David Cameron always polled better than Ed Miliband on the uh, polling about uh, who do you think would be the best Prime Minister. And the Conservative Party always polled better than Labour on the question about um, which party do you trust to run the economy. And people who stare at those numbers always say that those are the two numbers that matter uh, in terms of uh, helping to predict, shaping how general elections will actually turn out. And so even though Labour had a poll lead, there there were signs of weakness. And in the end, of course, Labour lost. What we're seeing in Labour's polling now is that not only is there the headline lead, but also Keir Starmer is polling better than Boris Johnson, not because Keir Starmer is super popular, but because Johnson is now very unpopular, but it means that Starmer has significantly better ratings. And also, kind of remarkably, because the Labour Party isn't saying much about the economy these days, Labour has moved ahead in those polling on which party do you trust uh, over the economy. And so my hunch is that if the Conservative Party does lose hundreds and hundreds of councillors in the uh, May elections. And I'm going to be vague about precise numbers because I haven't really studied the particular battlegrounds and exactly who is defending what in what contests. Um, But if the Conservative Party does lose substantially in the May elections, a lot of people in the Conservative Party will be very nervous that it looks like the 1990s again. They're losing lots of councillors. They're behind in the headline poll figures. They're behind on the other polling numbers that um, have proved to be robust in the past. And 
Obviously, you know, things are still very difficult for the Labour Party because the electoral geography of the United Kingdom is absolutely horrible for the Labour Party, above all but not only because of the collapse of of Scottish Labour. Um, And so for Labour to win an overall majority is still a very big ask indeed. Um, But the it looks to me as if in, there are enough warning signs coming together for the Conservatives that even if the local elections aren't quite what the European elections were in 2019, they will make a lot of Conservatives very, very worried indeed and looking to change what they can change, which is the Prime Minister. And it is true that polling, it, it doesn't just ask people, who do you trust more on the economy? The, the polls that I saw say, do you trust Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak or do you trust Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves? I'm sure a large proportion of the British public could not identify Rachel Reeves in a lineup, but still, Starmer Reeves outpolled Johnson Sunak, which you would think would give Sunak some pause, and maybe that's one of the things he's worried about. He doesn't want to be one half of the Johnson Sunak double act if that's what's going down. On the other hand, I mean, this is where I think it is historically disanalogous. This is the politics of scandal. So in in the other cases that we talked about, these were substantive policy questions, um, long-term challenges for the party. Johnson would not be in this position, and he was not in this position three, four months ago, were it not for the parties and the revelations and then the inquiry and now the possibility of uh, police action. And the politics of scandal is different from the politics of crisis. I've always thought this for lots of reasons. And it it can cut both ways in the sense that I think scandals do not tend to have long-term consequences for party politics. I mean, they have long-term consequences for how politics is conducted. So here's a completely false comparison, but Watergate. Watergate, the greatest scandal of all. Gerald Ford nearly won the subsequent election. He believed that if the election had happened three days later, he would have won it. Gerald Ford was a hopeless candidate, and he had inherited the office from a completely corrupt, as then seen, president. Watergate changed American politics completely because of the way it changed how politics was conducted, the sort of, as it were, the the rituals, routines, and systems of politics, but party politics not. The idea that getting rid of Johnson, the Tory brand is trashed by this scandal. I'm not sure about that. But I'm also not completely certain, and probably here, this is definitely an outlier position. I'm not completely certain that this scandal is not even recoverable by Johnson. I'm not, I find it hard to believe that um, he's not been damaged, and he could never repeat the success that he had in 2019 for all sorts of reasons. But 18 months down the line, if he does get through this summer, it was just a scandal. I think I half agree. Uh, the, the point at which I disagree, I think, is, is is that I think it's it's not any longer just a politics of scandal. It's a politics of chaos and 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 and, and, and of competence. And the problem for Johnson is that these two things have got really like tangled up, and they got tangled up from um, as a function of his um, personality. And that's partly, I think, because the question of his attitude towards risk and his aversion to any notion of like living one's life in relation to some kind of like rules and restraints has always been fundamental to the criticism of Johnson as a human being as to whether he's fit for being prime minister uh, in some sense. And then the scandal has gone into that aspect of his um, character. But it is also, I think, and it goes back to the point I made earlier about the effect it has had on what's going on at number 10 and the fact that he does not seem to be able to stabilise the personnel um, around him 
and rightly or wrongly, obviously, I'm not making comment on this, is he's now got tangled up with the question of his wife as well and his wife's influence and what goes on at number 10. And, and I think it's possible he can ride out the party aspect of it. Sorry, the parties aspect of it. I mean, ride out the party, party gate. gate party gate. It. Um, partly because that's just become like so protracted now and I just think the initial like moral outrage it doesn't last and perhaps over this length of time. I mean, it does for some individuals. I don't want to generalise too much. But the other part of it just, I think, has got the potential to just go on and on and on. Unless he could find somebody, and it seems it's not clear who this person could be, who he could have in some kind of, in the chief of staff role, who would who, who would basically allow him to run a moderately competent operation. And the people he's put in there so far have not been able to do that. It is the politics of scandal and it's the politics of chaos. Um, but it's quite closely linked to issues that have been lurking around for longer. Um, I never thought that Boris Johnson would become the leader of the Conservative Party, and the reason I didn't think he'd become leader of the Conservative Party is that Tory MPs didn't really like him, and you know that's kind of entirely understandable. Um, and so I thought that if he were to get through to the last two in a Conservative election campaign, he would win it because he was popular with the membership. People who don't know him like him, uh, or are much more likely to like him than people who do, people who see him close up. And I thought the Conservative Parliamentary Party would always be disciplined enough that it could prevent him getting one third of the votes of MPs plus one, which guarantees you a spot in that uh, final runoff. Um, of course, then in the crisis of 2019, in the crisis of the Conservative Party falling to 9% in the European elections, with that sense that uh, Theresa May was running out of road, it was a desperate parliamentary party that turned to Johnson. Um, and he did what they wanted him to do. He defeated the Labour Party, he defeated Jeremy Corbyn, he won the election, and proverbially he got Brexit done. Um Again, he got Brexit done in a way that saved up problems for later, in particular around the Northern Ireland Protocol. But that's what Johnson does. He finds short-term fixes for crises and, and deals with the mess they create later. Um, but there's that important point that he never had an especially large following in the parliamentary party. And insofar as there are newly elected MPs in 2019 who may feel some sense of gratitude to him, well, on the one hand, as we've discussed already, uh, it may be more a feeling that the party was led by not Theresa May. On the other hand, uh, there's quite a lot of evidence that the disaffection with Johnson in the Conservative Parliamentary Party was sharpest among the 2019 intake insofar as we get leaks from WhatsApp groups and so on. It does seem to be the new people who've gone off him faster. So what you then have is a, a politician who doesn't have a faction of the party, who doesn't have a, a big group of MPs who, who are willing to fight for him because of what he stands for, because of ideology, because of his, his uh, political and policy commitments. Um, and I think that all shapes the, the scandal we're getting. It's not just that it's government as usual, everything was going fine, and then this scandal comes out of nowhere and people have to adjust. Um, the scandal is very closely bound up with why Johnson was appealing in the first place, uh, which was a, a, a sense that rules don't matter, that norms don't matter, that you can disregard uh, long-held conventions for short-term gain, you know, think about the fights over prorogation of the, of the commons and so on. Um, all of those are the issues that are bound up with Partygate. 
Um, so I don't think it's quite as straightforward to say that um, this is scandal and scandals don't have an especially uh, profound effect on politics. Though I agree with you that I don't think this will ultimately trash the Tory brand, it's quite striking in the polling that the, po- the, the Tories have dropped from the low 40s to the low 30s in the polls. Um, but, you know, a third of the electorate still say tells pollsters they would vote Conservative. That's pretty robust. Um, and it's when the Tory... Uh, support would drop, kind of, would start to plummet. Not to the nine percent that we saw in 2019, but it's when the um, if the Tories were regularly polling in the mid 20s, I think then we would worry about the brand being trashed or it being a project of many years to salvage it, as indeed it was in the New Labour period under first William Hague and then Ian Duncan Smith and then Michael Howard, an attempt to rebuild conservatism from a from a catastrophic defeat. In the polls, they're nowhere near that. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So I have a couple of thoughts coming out of that. You're completely right. It's not just, and I, I didn't, I don't think I expressed it well. It's not just things were fine a few months ago and then it all fell apart. Because a lot of this has its roots in the earlier running of Downing Street by Dominic Cummings. I mean, this can't be separated from the end of that period of Johnson's administration. And, and Cummings himself was responsible for the strategy that got Johnson his thumping win in 2019, including the prorogation of Parliament. So it all it all goes back. I mean, if this is about chaos, it's partly because you know, he's reaping the rewards of earlier periods of chaos. I also think, and I hesitate to say this, and I don't want to get too deep into this because I realise it's um, provocative. But um, you know, I'm sure one of the lessons that Johnson learned from the prorogation of Parliament was that on most issues, the outrage of the other side works for him. Um, he is a provocateur in that sense. I mean, I think Cummings taught him this, and through Brexit as well, that the howls of outrage that he's done something completely beyond the pale in political terms in an era where people on the whole distrust all politicians, works for him because it just sounds phony. And the Jimmy Savile, Keir Starmer stuff is part of, it comes out of that play, but people call it Trumpian. But actually, I think it it's Johnson drawing the lesson of 2019, which is if he can get the other side shrieking in outrage about something that, whatever else you think about it, is about how politics is conducted, it works for him. The thing that will kill him is outrage about those parties. I mean, that's the thing. That classic deep hypocrisy, he set up a, a system of rules and governance for the country, which he didn't either take seriously or, as Theresa May said, didn't either didn't understand or didn't think it applied to him. That outrage is toxic. This week's outrage, I'm pretty certain, is not any more than the outrage over the prorogation of Parliament was toxic because, and this may sound odd given the issue at stake and you know, given that... Keir Starmer was harassed by you know, shrieking, small group of shrieking protesters. But it, 
I think outrage about that is still inside politics outrage. It's about, you know, you're not allowed to do politics that way. Johnson is fine with that. What will kill him is you didn't obey the rules that you set for us. And I think, I mean, I think it's a conscious thing. I suspect, you know, some of the people who are advising him absolutely have told him not to apologise on this. I mean, it is Trumpian, but it's it's also Cummingsian. It's part of the irony here. He's doing the Cummings thing to save himself from Cummings. I mean, I, I think I largely agree with that. I mean, I, I think the thing about the, the, the proroguing issue is that however provocative it was, and I think it, there was a number of aspects of it that were um, deeply feckless, is I don't think it's right to understand it in terms of the, the politics of chaos uh, in that respect. In this sense is, is that the only option that the Conservative Party had at that point was to take Britain, succeed in taking Britain out of the European Union. And Cummings strategised a way to defeat the Remainers in Parliament who wanted Brexit not to happen. And I know that there were plenty of Remainers in Parliament for whom that wasn't the position, but there was clearly some for whom um, it was. Get to a general election where the not necessarily the numerical majority of voters who are in favour of leave, but the electoral coalition that would manifest itself in a general election could assert itself. And that's essentially what happened. So I think that what happened in 2019 is much more bound up with the voters than it is with, in the end, with Cummings as sort of, whatever you want to call it, politics of outrage. He was trying to use the voters to get to an end and... The voters take, or these voters, I mean by this, the Leave Coalition of voters, uh, having the feelings that they did was a necessary condition of that being realised. I think that that's just like not in play in the same way any longer. Indeed, I think the problem for Johnson is, is that the very voters who have moved away from him, who are responsible for the fact that, as Chris says, the Conservatives are now down in 30%, are many of those voters who took to Johnson, not because they particularly liked him, but because he became the only way in which there was any possibility of their vote in the referendum leading to Britain leaving the European um, Union. So I think that Johnson as a personality in relation to the voters, these voters, has always been a bit overdone. It's more about them than it is about him. But he's kind of like blown the symbolism of that away by becoming the rule breaker, by basically telling them that there are rules for them that they have to live by and there are the same rules don't apply to him because he's different, he's better than them, he's important, etc. That's a lethal thing for somebody who was doing what he was doing or was being encouraged to do what he was doing or was the expression of something that was well um, beyond him to be doing. There's obviously something Trumpian about the way in which Johnson conducts himself, but we mustn't be too caught up with that because there are also echoes of pre-Trump politics too. And the two that strike me are firstly that... Joe Cox was murdered in the streets during the referendum campaign in 2016 when Trump was still a candidate, not yet president. Um, And when you see clips of uh, groups, is mobs the right word? Not sure, but groups of people um, hassling, jostling, confronting, threatening Keir Starmer in the street, that's what that kind of 
brings to mind um, the, that politics has become uh, more confrontational and more violent, and that has nothing to do with Donald Trump. The other thing about the Jimmy Savile case is that what it reminds me of is the presidential election in 2004, where the Republicans, as they say, swift-boated uh, John Kerry, that they took what ought to have been his selling point to the electorate, that Unlike President George W. Bush, he was a war hero. He had served in Vietnam. Um, it was the in another election. It might have been the the centerpiece of the Democratic campaign, and the Republicans found a way of of weaponizing it, of turning it against him, of um, of trying to create a scandal. And they had practically nothing to work with. But my goodness, they went for it. And insofar as there's a playbook behind the Jimmy Savile smears, it's it's that it's an attempt to. Um, try fundamentally to undermine uh, Keir Starmer's distinguished record of public service uh, as director of public prosecutions uh, before he entered uh, electoral politics, try to turn something that Labour hopes will work as an asset for him in the public mind, will help to make the public think he's a reliable, competent, diligent public service with a reasonably tough record on criminal justice issues, which um, uh, is something that, you know, Labour's always, uh, Labour strategists sometimes worried when their um, leaders come across as too liberal on criminal justice issues. This is what Labour is hoping will work to sell Keir Starmer to an electorate. And the the Savile lie, the Savile smear is, is designed to raise question marks around just that, in the manner of the Swift Boat stories from from 2004. So absolutely, we can look for the parallels between Johnson and Trump in terms of behaviour, in terms perhaps of conscious modelling of the one on the other. Um, But there's a lot of other stuff going on, and the the nastiness of politics uh, is is a more deep-seated set of developments than anything we can personalise on the the figure of Donald Trump. I'm I'm maybe being naive here, but... I still instinctively feel British politics is resistant to that kind of swift boating. And if that's the strategy, it won't work. And my sense is that that may be, as it were, a background hope. We might even get really lucky and people will believe this. But it's more designed to have people shrieking, you're not allowed to do that. And and this is going to sound hard. I mean, the murder of Joe Cox was one of the most terrible events in recent British political history and it suggested a a new kind of extremely unpleasant politics at least had the potential to break out and we should all be wary of that. The other really hard fact about that is that many people at the time thought that it would impact the Brexit vote and it didn't and indeed the horror didn't and I just feel that that's probably the lesson that Johnson has drawn from his recent career, which is that people think that things will do for him or the causes that he stands for because they seem to symbolise a breakdown of politics and that most people have internalised that politics is kind of broken anyway and so what they hear are the shrieks of outrage. I don't know and I still I, I agree with Helen that something he has done something from which it may well be that he cannot recover which is he's completely trashed his own brand and throwing out these kinds of provocations is not going to save his brand. It, it still depends on the police and the May elections and he's got to get through both of those and he's got to hope they don't happen on the same day kind of thing. But 
I, I think he, I think part of the reason he he will not quit is that he doesn't think the game is up, and part of the reason he doesn't think the game is up is that at previous points, you know, I remember, I'm sure we all remember, in 2019, people said this is completely unsustainable, and Helen's right, there was a substantive strategic approach behind it that showed that it was not only sustainable, it was a winning strategy, but at the time, people said this is going to be the shortest-lived prime minister in history because this has just become farcical now. And there's a little part of him, I feel, even this week, that is relishing his sense that he's echoing some of that. Who, who knows? I mean, like, we're not going to come no. back to this. So, And I'm really nervous about saying these things. It makes me sound like I think he's going to survive and prosper. I don't. But I think he's drawn a range of lessons which mean he's not going to give up. That's what I think. I mean, the only thing I would say, add to it, is I think that if you look at his career thus far as an MP, including through an important section of the the Brexit debates after the the referendum, is he tends to withdraw. He tends to come to the fore, do his thing, and then pull back. I mean, if you take the what happened when he became foreign secretary, for instance, you know he didn't try, as far as we can see from the outside, to insist that he had to have a significant say in the way in which Theresa May was. pursuing Brexit. Indeed, he allowed the Foreign Office to be pretty much completely marginalised um, in that um, process, both before the 2017 election and after the 2017 um, election. He didn't resign over the backstop issue when it came. He, when he got to resigning, it was only after David Davis had um, beaten you know, him to it. He went through the um, vote on the meaningful vote on the, on the last one, Certainly, I can't remember about the second one, but he certainly did on he certainly did on the um, the last um, one. There were reports then that he was kind of reconciled to the fact he was never going to be prime minister. The only thing that gave him a chance again was what happened in May two thousand and nineteen in those elections when the Conservative Party was looking at its death, so to um, speak. Now, the difficulty of being prime minister is you can't do that. You can't just like be doing it for a while and then say, okay, I've had enough of it, I'm going to withdraw and do whatever whatever he does when he's not in <laughs> in that public. You have to do it all the time. Uh, and he's shown that he can't put in a structure in place that allows him to do it all the time. And I, I think that that's where I know exactly what you're saying, David, but I just kind of think how he, how he sort of like psychologically continues with this is quite difficult to see. So I want to ask a last much bigger question. So let's leave Boris behind. Boris Johnson. People hate it when we say Boris. Let's leave Johnson behind. Uh, so we're coming to the end of the, this the, the podcast, which we've been doing for six years. We've talked about uh, politics in lots of different places, but we've had a quite a strong focus on British politics. Um, we haven't really reflected on, we talked a lot about Brexit, but what we think the legacy of, of the pandemic years might be for British politics. So we're, we're at that point, who knows, but we're at that point where at least one phase of the pandemic seems to be winding down. And politics is shifting back to some other questions, though, with a huge legacy of issues and scandals arising from that. And there is a hope in some quarters that we're returning to a recognisable pre-pandemic politics. And then other people think, in a sense, that we've moved to a new phase. Do you, do you have any feeling for what the, the last couple of years have meant? And I'm just going to offer one suggestion, and you can totally disagree with this, but... Um, and we have discussed this a bit. It does feel to me like the pandemic years in political terms have partly been a, a forerunner of the politics of climate change uh, in some respects. And over the next, say, 5, 10, 15 years, 
some of the things that governments reluctantly have taken on, including this conservative government, which is trying to regulate how people live. I mean, try, having to insist on certain tough choices for people. And they've been able to do it under extreme conditions, but it but it's sort of unraveling a bit now that things have got a little bit less extreme. But it also creates a politics in which the conduct of politicians, whether they can live up to their own rules, is absolutely central. And it creates op- opportunities for those who want to bring politicians down to expose their, their hypocrisy. And my sense is that this probably is a forerunner of a extended period of politics, where politics is going to often turn on these questions as governments try. So if you just think about from here to net zero, as governments try to create a, a structure within which they can ask sacrifices of people um, at some level, that the kind of politics we have makes that hard and unstable. And that instability is probably a feature of politics for the foreseeable future, including possibly relatively short-run premierships, um, the politics of scandal being a more significant feature. If you just think about, if, if I think about what net zero politics might look like relative to the last couple of years in bleaker moments, I think it's a turbocharged version of the last couple of years. I haven't really thought much about that because my sense is that the long-term, the, long, the medium-term politics of climate change about um, announcing targets a long way in advance and then taking steps to meet them or not to miss them by too much. And so think of the way that diesel cars, petrol cars are you know, are likely to be phased out before too long and it's going to be a gradual process where there are increasing restrictions in, uh, in driving in cities and uh, the infrastructure for electric charging will be built up and people will know that, um, you know, whereas if you're looking to buy a car... Now, um, you will have a wider range of choice than if you buy, aim to buy a car in 10 years or in 20 years' time. So a lot of it is about um, managing expectations for a long-term transition to different ways of living and stuff about insulating houses or uh, replacing gas, gas boilers with other modes of heating all seem to be part of that. And that seems to be a long way away from uh, a politics of, of, of scandal, of, of chaos, of, of, of day-to-day political complexity Absolutely, we may see more of the kind of scandals focusing on personal hypocrisy about politicians jetting off to things that they don't really need to jet off to. That may happen, and we are likely to see the kind of double standards where the media gives Labour politicians a much harder time on this kind of thing than Conservative politicians. But I I don't quite see the long-term adaptation to climate change as offering the same kind of disruption as we've been seeing in recent years. What I'm struck by thinking about politics coming out of the pandemic more is an accentuation and a, a deepening of existing trends. So in particular, the way that um, ever since the financial crash in 2008, uh, politics has been, life has been very hard for young people, both in terms of job opportunities and in terms of the housing market uh, and in all kinds of ways. And it seems to be coming out of a pandemic where uh, very young people have had their schooling severely disrupted and their experience of university life um, transformed and then are heading on to a continuingly inhospitable uh, job market with uh, the likely effects of Brexit being a depression on the growth rate over the medium to long run. It looks to me as if what uh, the pandemic is going to do is to uh, 
deepen those issues. And you know, we're familiar with what some of the relevant issues are, that we're in a world where kind of old people tend to vote and young people don't, and old people tend to vote conservative and young people, insofar as they vote, don't. And this seems to me setting up for the possibility of a transformative electoral event uh, on the scale of 1945 or 1997, where, as it were, if the Labour Party can get things right, they have the prospect of um, of, of, of a very large uh, electoral victory. They probably won't, because on the whole, the Labour Party doesn't tend to get things right. Um, but that's what I think about when I think about what's going to happen as politics gets back to so-called normal. It's going to be these generational issues, these distributive issues. Um, but it may be that I just haven't thought enough about climate change, and of course climate change is one of those things that's sufficiently terrifying that one doesn't like to think about it too much. I agree with you, David, about the the politics of sacrifice and the politics of how we live our individual lives, the choices that we make about how we live our lives. These are just part of politics as a function of the pandemic in ways I think that they weren't there before and they have a lot of implications, I think, for... Um, climate change and I think we can see as well from the politics of the pandemic in this country as it went on how divisive the questions about how we all live our lives are and how we think about life existentially in some some sense how we think about mortality these questions uh, are going to play out in different ways around um, climate change I think the thing that I think will in a way maybe well, two things. One, I think, which will look in retrospect when someone sort of tells a, a history of the latter part of the 2010s and then the politics of the 2020s and thinks about this, and I'm just going to use this British politics because that's what we've been talking about. I mean, that commitment to net zero by 2050 was Theresa May in pretty much the last months of her premiership. I think it was like May 2019, pushing that legislation through the um, House of Commons, there wasn't a lot of sort of political contest about it at the time, not least because, as we've just been talking about, the politics of Britain at that point was completely consumed um, by um, Brexit. But it's like a massive juncture, if you look about it over long um, history, in the way in which British politics turns. And it didn't change when Boris Johnson became leader of the uh, Conservative Party. Indeed, he embraced that part of Theresa May's legacy, if we can call it that. But I think that what we've seen during the course of the pandemic, it, partly because the pandemic has been so disruptive economically and quite a number of the difficulties that have come into play already in terms of economic recovery from the pandemic or around energy, um, there is now a much stronger sense. And you can see it in some of the, some sense, cries of pain, so to speak, about in the Conservative Party about like where, they, where, where, the, where the party is going, that this is really tough politics. If it was all supposed to be about... Um, zero 2050 can be a growth strategy and it can just be a very op optimistic story to be told about the, the future. I think we can already see as a consequence of the politics of the pandemic in itself and the knock-on consequences in terms of the energy crisis situation or any, let's just call it energy situation that we're facing at the moment that isn't going to be like um, that. It is much more about the politics of limits and I think that that's something that it isn't there in either the pre-Brexit politics I mean part of which a lot of which was actually just I, I'm not trying to minimize this but was bound up with the question of how big the state was in the first part you know and how much money the state should spend and what it should spend money on or the Brexit um, period which was either about some idea that something terrible was about to be done to who we are as a people in Britain what our position is in the world or from those who were in favor of 
of Brexit, the idea that um, something different could be done, there was some experimental aspect to um, Brexit. Neither of the, those politics were really about the politics of, of limits in the sense at least that I'm talking about, but I think that's where we're going. Helen and I are going to talk more about that in a couple of weeks, the politics of limits, the deep legacy of history, the politics of energy, when we discuss her new book. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking about the politics of Europe, particularly focusing on France. So there is still more to come on Talking Politics. And before we go, as we sat down to record in my office, we got a knock on the door and a box arrived full of delicious tomato-related goodies from someone called Richard. Um, we were extremely grateful and very excited. If you are that, Richard, <laughs> tell us who you are uh, so we can tell you how grateful we are. Um, I think if I was a DJ at this point, I'd say, and more gifts would be very welcome. <laughs> no. <laughs> Please join us again next week. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today we're going to have one last go. <laughs> <laughs> no one ever knocks on the door. Come in. Hi. Hello, you have a box with your name on it. Yeah. Thank you. Tomatoes. Tomatoes. What? Banana. <laughs> for, what? for me, not for you, not for Helen. Oh, you're talking about the scene. Donald Sanders tomato. So <laughs> Your this... order was made. Can we open it? I'm really curious. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> I've ordered none. Richard Ashcraft. Maybe you should Mary just, maybe you should just put a, a, whatever they call it. Shout out. Who, saying thank you to Richard who sent all this. Yeah, this is extraordinary. <laughs> yeah. Tomato juice, tomato frappuccino. What, what a thing. Mm. Thank this person on what air. What a thing. <laughs> Say we were about to start and some. <laughs> that's so sweet. Who is that? It's, an, it's the same. Does that say no, the same thing? That's just about the thing. Just says Richard. Richard's out there, aren't they? Yeah. So. But I don't. Yeah. It doesn't need you to know be how there's true crime podcasts? Yeah. <laughs> we could have a spin off. Who is Dickie? <laughs> Here we go. Eight parts? Sponsored by Alpen. With a twist in part seven. Yes. Part <laughs> right, should we go again? <clears throat> yeah. Okay. <clears throat> ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.